Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We're a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and a collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership on keeping the American Blue Economy at the forefront of conservation and prosperity. I am super excited, folks, about today's episode. You know, many times throughout this podcast series, I've invited employees from my former agency, NOAA, to discuss their contributions to the American Blue Economy. And now I have three individuals from one of my favorite parts of that organization. And this is the NOAA Corps of Commissioned Officers. So very, very happy to be inviting uh, or introducing our three NOAA Corps officers uh, who will be our guest today. And they each have a wide range of really fascinating experiences. And so we're going we're gonna to be sharing some sea stories and having a very good time. So first up, I want to introduce a retired NOAA Corps commander, Mark Miller. He's the CEO and founder of Greenwater Marine Sciences Offshore, Inc. And he's in Alexandria, Virginia. Welcome to the show, Mark. Admiral, always a pleasure hanging out with you. Right on. Yes. And once again, after our Explorers Club annual dinner uh, a few months ago, um, good to reconnect. We also have Commander Rebecca Waddington. She is a certified NOAA pilot and currently the executive director to the deputy undersecretary for operations of NOAA in Silver Spring. Rebecca, so glad to have you here. Thank you so much, sir. It's a big honor to be invited. I'm glad to be here. Oh, what a good attitude. That's I've always found that great about you. And we have rounding out this group, Lieutenant Dustin Picard. He is the chief of the NOAA Corps recruiting branch in Silver Spring, Maryland. Dustin, I am so stoked for you to join us today. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Admiral. Really appreciate the invite and looking forward to today's discussion. Thank you. You bet. You bet. Well, hey, let's kick this off with you, Dustin. You're the chief recruiter for the NOAA Corps. So why don't you give our audience just a broad overview of what the NOAA Corps is? Yeah, certainly, sir. I appreciate you starting off with me. Um, so NOAA Corps is one of uh, the country's eight uh, services. So you have your six armed services today, as well as two uh, uniformed services. One is the U.S. Public Health Service and the other being the NOAA Commission Corps. Uh, we support NOAA's missions, both uh, from aviation operations to maritime operations. Um, and, and I really kind of describe us as the operational arm of NOAA. Uh, we get trained to, you know, if you follow the maritime track, to to drive NOAA's uh, fleet of research vessels, uh, uh, operate NOAA's small boats, conduct dive operations, operate uncrewed systems technology. On the aviation side, uh, you get to fly our planes in support of um, atmospheric and maritime missions. Um, and all of this is, is to support NOAA's research, um, both within the agency as well as some of our academic partners uh, and uh, international partners as well. So again, we're kind of the operational arm of NOAA, uh, the ones that are kind of out there leading field research projects for our scientists in the name of uh, collecting data. Right. Good job there. You know your job. That's good. And uh, (laughs) I like that overview, the operational arm of NOAA. And I'm sure every listener knows what NOAA as an agency does, but they are the nation's uh, fisheries managers and environmental scientists, oceanographers, uh, ecologists and meteorologists, and so and satellite operators. And then, and so this is the these are the folks, the NOAA Corps, that that help get all that done by driving the boats and the ships and the aircraft and the drones now more and more. So we'll talk all about that. Mm-hmm. And on that topic of driving aircraft, uh, I want to go to you, Rebecca, as a NOAA pilot. I remember first meeting you, I think, in 2018. And what was the aircraft that we were? I was looking at that you were a, a pilot of. Yes, sir. We happened to meet up in Austin, Texas during the annual uh, American Meteorological Society meeting. I think that's why you were in town. And I happened to be there with our King Air 350 aircraft, which is NOAA's premier remote sensing platform. Mm. 
Yeah, um, well, that now that that was really neat. I remember I couldn't get out of the cockpit. All that all that you were sharing <laughs> with me about that. Um, but how, how about for our audience though? That was that was nice to just in, introduce our relationship. But what can you just give us a broad overview of, of NOAA Aviation for our, our listeners? Absolutely. Um, I think NOAA Aviation is probably one of the best kept secrets in the industry. We get to do flights like no one else ever gets a chance to. Uh, we have a total of nine aircraft. We're about to get our 10th um, in a, the next month or so. We're adding another King Air to the fleet. Um, but right now, we've got two P3s and a Gulfstream 4. Those are considered our Hurricane Hunter aircraft, uh, which is what we're mostly known for, but that's not even half of what we do. Uh, but those aircraft are used uh, to, to research the weather, particularly, as the name implies, around hurricanes. We have two King Air 350s, like the one you saw. Uh, one is used primarily for coastal mapping. So we're constantly mapping the shoreline at low tides, high tides, and that really ties into our maritime side of NOAA and updating the nautical charts for shipping purposes. Right. Uh, the other King Air uh, probably does one of our most dangerous missions. And I know I already said that we do hurricane hunting, but this King Air does snow survey. And in this mission, we're flying at 500 feet over the mountainous Gosh. terrain. Um, and what we're doing is using a super sensitive instrument that can measure the snow water equivalent in snowpack. And that's really important in flood forecasting. Right, right. The rest of our fleet is rounded out by twin otters, which are kind of the workforce of the fleet. They are out on the road all the time doing everything from looking at northeast right whales to flying up in Alaska looking at seals. So they have a lot of various missions uh, like I said, they are low, slow, good to go, our NOAA workforce. <laughs> that was great, Rebecca. You, you, you know your job, too. Uh, yeah, I, I actually flew in a Twin Otter. Uh, the Canadians uh, uh, operate those. Do you, do, you, do you train with Canada? We do, actually. We send all of our pilots up to flight safety twice a year. Um, that's And the flight safety for the Twin Otter is located in Toronto because the Twin Otter is a Canadian aircraft. Mm, that's right. Uh, so we send all our pilots up to Toronto to... Do everything in the plane that you don't want to do in an actual plane. And it's all the train for those emergencies that you hope never actually happen. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Oh, I have so many things to talk to you about. I'll, I'll wait, though. And I'd like to get to Mark Miller, Commander NOAA Corps retired. Because uh, the other neat aspect of the NOAA Corps is ship driving. And Mark, you've commanded two NOAA vessels, which is really impressive. One was kind of more ocean going, I guess. And one was just strictly fisheries. Can you... Tell us about a broad overview of, of the NOAA fleet and what it does. Absolutely. So, yeah, I had uh, most of my career was primarily on the fisheries research vessels. Uh, so we did a lot of studies uh, for uh, fishery stock assessments and collecting data uh, acoustically. And we'd also do really cool work of uh, trawling. So we'd actually go out and catch the fish uh, and the scientists would, would count and process them. That was a lot of the career uh, and a lot of oceanography, you know, your tide and currents and harmful algal blooms, uh, a lot of chasing whales. That's that's good, fun stuff right there. Uh, whales and dolphins um, uh, all, all around the country. Um, and then we have our hydrographic fleet, uh, which goes out and primarily makes the charts uh, for all our navigators out there. Uh, big ships, little, little boats, everybody uh, that uses a chart in the United States is using NOAA uh ship data right, primarily right. and that's every every mariner even fisher you know fish charter captains they're all using NOAA charts and big container ship drivers in the u.s ports yeah that's that's such a great mission you know mark uh, it's interesting I, I, I have great respect for you and, and the NOAA corps officers who are ship drivers because uh as a meteorology and oceanography officer i still i did stand deck watches on aircraft carriers and other ships but uh i never commanded a ship uh, the the that's just not the way it is in the in the in the U.S. Navy. So the, the fact that you can rise to command of your ships is very impressive. And you have had two commands. Uh, what, and which ships were those for our audience? So yeah, I have the uh, no ship uh, Henry Bigelow, uh, based out of uh, Newport, Rhode Island. So we covered the Northeast primarily, um, and then the no ship Nancy Foster, uh, which was out of Charleston, South Carolina, and she would cover the uh, the entire East Coast. I literally in one year worked from Maine all the way down to the Dry Tortugas off of Key West. 
Yeah, that's where I saw you, I think, in Charleston on the Nancy Foster once or twice, maybe. I don't remember. You? Uh, Charleston, and then I think Norfolk was the uh, the last time I, I saw you when I was still in command. That's right. That was the unofficial one. I wasn't. You weren't on my itinerary, but I still wanted to stop by. That's a, that's a funny thing about you know our handlers. Actually, that's that's Rebecca's job right now for, for Ben Friedman. But um, anyways, uh, that's really cool. Thank you for the overview, everybody. So you, and that's why I just think the NOAA Corps is such a great community, a great officer corps in that you do these really neat missions and um, in every domain. And interestingly, what, what we didn't yet, yet talk about, but I've talked about on numerous episodes is is diving and i want to go back to dustin because dustin's last job or a, a few jobs ago was was um, involved diving at the flower garden banks national marine sanctuary in the gulf of mexico which i talked about in the last episode where we went into the sanctuaries and uh, steve giddings uh dustin was on the show he was great and uh could, so you can you can share with us a little bit about what the NOAA Corps does with respect to diving and where they get trained, if you can. Yeah, absolutely, sir. Um, so NOAA has its own like diving qualification program. Uh, we call it the NOAA Diving Program. It's based out of Seattle, Washington, and it's not too dissimilar from you know some of the uh, recreational uh, qualification systems that exist out there, like PADI or NAWI, for example. However, you know it's it's more uh, internal to NOAA's operations. So as a NOAA Corps officer or even like a NOAA civilian uh, scientist or researcher who's interested in diving. You can apply to go to the NOAA diving program. Uh, what's great is that we we offer three trainings per year for our NOAA diver course. That's kind of our basic entry level course. Uh, they're offered January, May, and September. Uh, one's offered in a warm weather climate in January, typically Key West or Hawaii, while the May and September classes are in Seattle. Those first three weeks, they'll teach you day one, like what a snorkel, uh, snorkel is, a BCD, and you know, these are some of the equipment that you use as a diver. All the way to the end, where you're, you know, you're learning emergency procedures, rescue techniques, how to do some um, more complicated hands-on diving as well. And so that's a pretty intensive three-week course. After graduation, you're pretty much trained to go dive within any NOAA dive unit, and that's what's really, um, I would say, important about our training. Right? It's really specific to NOAA's missions, and it's also really uniform across the board. So as a core officer who goes transfers units. I can go dive with the scientific team, you know, at Flower Garden Banks, for example, and then report to my next ship a few years later and dive with a, a whole different uh, dive team that has the same foundational training and not to mention the same dive gear as well. And that becomes really important when it comes to emergency procedures or if you have uh, fouled equipment or something like that. We kind of all know how to act in, the, in those in those um, systems uh, or those um, u- unique times, right? Um, so yeah, so it's it's a it's an internal qualification process uh, or program that we offer. After that initial three-week training, uh, you can certainly go out and pursue higher-level qualifications, including dive master training. There's dive medical training, or um, if you're interested in, you know, kind of the medical side of things or on the leadership side of things. And there's some NOAA dive units that do a lot of technical and rebreather diving as well. So if you're really gung ho and want to kind of pursue that in your career, you can certainly make that a possibility as well. So it's pretty cool. Gosh, I, I, I want to sign up right now. <laughs> uh, that's just great. And Dustin, which which certifications do you have? Yeah, so I was pretty fortunate. Right after basic training, um, I was uh, headed to one of our ships, and they were in the middle of a 45-day leg. So my XO was like, hey, why don't you go to dive school? Because I had expressed interest. So I went to you know that basic three-week entry-level dive course um, You know, pretty much right at the beginning of my career. And I'm pretty proud of that because it's a goal of mine to stay a NOAA diver throughout the duration of my career. Good. Um, yeah. After completion of that, about a year later, I went to, to um, NOAA Dive Master Training, which again is more on the leadership side of things. So still operational in a sense, but you know, again, more on the leadership side of things. And then um, I have started to make uh, progress on getting to dive medical training. So I did an EMT course and uh, hoping to get out there maybe later this year, if not next year, because that's a goal of mine to continue on that certification track. Um, but yeah, certainly where I stand now is Dive Master. Yeah, good. That's great. Congratulations. That's wonderful to hear. And I think, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but some of our listeners have mentioned that the dive center director at the NOAA dive center director in Seattle, who I met in 2018, also Rebecca, he was my, my wife's Navy dive school classmate. So she went to dive school with him. He was dove in the Navy, I believe. And then, uh, found his way to NOAA. So that was really cool to kind of, uh, have a, have a connection to him and meet him. Uh, thank Quite you. A small world. It really is. I mean, I tell you that I, 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 this happened all the time to me at NOAA, where I find people that 
we were on a ship together in the Navy or something. It was it's really interesting, and, and I loved it. It's why I just love the agency so much. And, and so at that, Rebecca, how about you? Now, what aircraft of those that you mentioned are you certified on, and which, which do you like flying the best? Oh, well, that's an easy question. Uh, in the words of Ricky Bobby, I want to go fast. So I am an instructor <laughs> pilot on the Gulfstream 4, which is our fastest aircraft in the fleet. And I also um, am still an aircraft commander on the King Air 350. Well, that's really interesting. So you're a, an aircraft commander on that when I'm on the, um, it, it's a prop plane, right? The King Air? Correct. Yes. Uh, big props, two four-bladed props. Yeah. And, and then the Gulfstream to jet. Correct. Yes. Two very, very different types of flying. Um, I'll tell you, the first time you take off in that jet after being on nothing but props, you feel that acceleration going down the runway. It's like, whoa, hang on. Wow. Wow. That's so neat. Um, yeah. And and so what what is the, uh, how fast does it go with the Gulfstream? Uh, the Gulfstream can get up to Mach 8.8. We certainly don't fly it that fast. That is the uh, limitation of the aircraft. But we are usually flying our missions at Mach 7.7, which I'm sure you, Admiral, are familiar with Mach speed, um, but that changes the airspeed based on your altitude, outside temperature, all sorts of factors. Um, for ease of computing, we'll just say around 450 miles an hour. Ah, wow. Wow. How interesting. What missions do you do? Is that the, That's the hurricane mission high altitude? Is that what it is? It is. Um, the G4 is a very unique aircraft, the only one of its kind um, operating the way it, that it does. Um, for the U.S. anyway. We are primarily weather reconnaissance, so we have two basic missions. One is the hurricane surveillance. That, that project is very important, and the plane specifically is very important for hurricane track forecasts. Uh, with the jet being as fast as it is and as high as it can go is uh, flight level 450, so 45,000 feet, um, it can cover a lot of ground. So when we go out for a hurricane mission, we're not only flying around the storm itself, but we're flying into the environment in which the storm is going to move into. So if you think about it, if you have, say, a cold front draped over the eastern half of the U.S., you want to know how strong that front is going to be. So right. we will fly through that front to get a sampling of that environment, because if it's a strong front, when this hurricane interacts with it, it will push the hurricane out to sea. If it's a weak front, the hurricane can break through it, into the Gulf of Mexico and really wreak havoc on our Gulf states. So knowing not only the storm environment, but the surrounding environment is very important in determining the track. Right, right. You're you're revealing your meteorological meteorological chops right now. <laughs> you know, I, I can't help it. Once a meteorologist, always a meteorologist. Well, I, I love that. That's, that's why it was so fun to pick this group because I knew that Dustin had this great diving experience. But I, I was a meteorologist in the Navy. I, I've issued forecasts where lies were on the line. I saw you did an internship at, at the Weather Service in Monterey. Is that right? I did. Um, yes, I went to San Jose State University out in California. I'm from California, so wanted to stick semi-close to home. And I was fortunate enough that the forecast office in Monterey was driving distance from San Jose. So during my junior and senior years of college, I interned there on the weekends and got um, a lot of great experience in just learning basic forecasting skills and the way the National Weather Service operated as well. That's great. I've been there too, by the way, and I love the people there. And great, great Monterey is also a beautiful place. But uh, oh, it's I wonderful. Love, yeah, it is. But I'm really, I have to say, I really admire your career path of having this meteorology degree. And it comes in handy as an aviator, I would say, wouldn't you think? It certainly does. I think every pilot, to some extent, is an operational meteorologist. And Admiral, I'll be honest with you, when I first joined the NOAA Corps, my plan was to only be in for five years. I had this great plan of, I'm going to go to sea while I'm still young and free and can have that fun. And then I'm going to go to the National Hurricane Center. We have one NOAA Corps billet there, and I was just convinced that I was going to get it. Um, and then I was going to leave NOAA Corps and stay with NOAA as a civilian. That was my grand plan. A meteorologist. And as a meteorologist, yeah. Huh. And, and everything was, was working according to plan. I went to sea for, for two years, had a great time. That was in Hawaii, right? I was. Yes, Hawaii. So not a bad place to go for your first assignment, especially. Uh, but then I, I actually got selected for the Hurricane Center billet, and I went there. I loved it. But at the end of the day, I realized the value of the NOAA Corps operational missions. Ah. And 
And then the chance to fly dropped in my lap and I, I jumped on it. How neat. How, well, that's, that's, I like this. This is a really good lesson, by the way, in, in, in terms of being um, adaptable. Uh, you know, that sometimes life throws curveballs at you and turn them in, you know, into opportunities and hit a home run. And you obviously have done that. Um, it, I will talk more about your aviation experiences, but I want to get to Mark. Because um, Mark has had some really cool experiences. He, he's, I think, served the longest of everybody here on this on this group. And um, I, I have to, I'm going to leave it to you, Mark. You said you had stories to tell. Give us a good sea story of and, which I will get back to and ask several. But I, I what, what maybe maybe what was your best ship, and, and what was an example of some of the work you did? Oh man, I'm telling you, every single one of them was cool, fun, excellent work. Um, and they were all really different, which was great, right? Because people like uh, you and I get bored easily. So every ship I went to was completely, <laughs> completely different. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, you know the the so you, you were a plank owner on the on the Bell Shimada, right? Bell and Shimada, yeah. And I will tell you, she was one of my favorites. Um, but it was so near and dear to my heart because uh, we brought the ship online, which meant I spent a year in a shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi, which wasn't all that exciting. But uh, but then we got to bring her out of the out of the yard and um, basically try to break her. Yeah. Did you go to the Panama Canal to deliver her to Seattle? We, we, we did. Yeah. So we took her out of the yard. We, we basically tried to break her before we signed off on her, which is fun. It's like, oh, you usually don't do this with a ship, but we're going to try it. Um, and then, uh, and then we tested turns? all the, oh yeah, high speed turns, full ahead to full astern, like all the good stuff. But it, well, <laughs> do you remember what the ship's stopping distance was when you went from full ahead to full astern? Oh, not off the top of my head, but it was not far. It was not far at all because um, it had, had pretty pretty powerful engines, but it has a huge massive rudder, and we did learn that you want to turn if you can before instead of trying to to reverse the engines to stop because she turned on a dime. I mean, it was it was like 120 yards or something. It was ridiculous. Wow, wow. like a ship this this size should not turn this quickly, and it does. Uh, um, the ships yeah, took her had turning distances of, of like two miles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's why we could weave in and out of all those. Um, cool. And then you were on the Bigelow, which was out of Newport. Yeah, and we did a lot of really cool work there. So that was the the half half of our work was uh, bottom trawl survey. So basically, um, cod and similar fish, and uh, set me set me a. Uh, what was the what is the weirdest thing you ever pulled up in a net uh, for your NOAA missions, the fisheries missions? Um, basking shark. Memorable. Oh, really? Whoa. That's They're so big. Yeah. They're really, 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 really big. And when it fills up, yeah, I got a big ship with a big back deck and it fills up the entirety of the deck. When did you yeah, do that? Uh, it's somewhere out there during that trawl survey. So like, what the heck's in this bag? Oh my <laughs> you God. You pull it up on deck and like, oh boy, this That's is going to be fun. cool. Gosh. We also had a 12, 12 foot hammerhead, uh, once that was, uh, that was entertaining. That's like, a how big do you, fish. How do you get it off the deck without, you know, <laughs> getting, losing your hand? On. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Um, wow. But, but yeah, that was a really, really cool, fun, fun work uh, and, and super important. I mean, we were the biggest data point for, for um, cod and all the ground fish up there. So like every single thing we did was, was we knew the importance of it for, for the fishermen and for the environment and everything in between uh, the economy. Um, so it was high stress, uh, but really cool, fun work of, of towing nets through canyons and, and in weird areas where most people don't, don't want to put a big net on the bottom. So that was a lot of the work. And, uh, we did big ROV work, uh, with the Ropos Canadians, um, the Seamounts, uh, off of New England, uh, was, was part of the work we did was discovering and, and checking those guys out. That's great. Wow. I, I have some more. I'm going to ask about the Nancy Foster missions later, uh, but I wanted to get to Dustin. So Dustin, as the chief recruiter, you ha I think you, you might have mentioned this, but you oversee all that Noah's doing and you're, you're trying to get good talent into Noah. And, and I, you know, you probably, uh, you, you may know that I was leading much of Noah's uncrewed systems activities at the highest strategic level, creating a new office that Captain Bill Mowat has now, the NOAA Uncrewed Systems Operations Center. Uh, we got that put forward in the 2020 budget, I believe. And uh, and I worked with Senator Wicker to include parts of a, a legislation to direct some of that activity. Anyways, long story short, our long question is that uh, short is, 
uh, are you including that in your recruiting pitches about Noah's drone work? Yeah, absolutely, sir. I appreciate you bringing that up. <clears throat> so the way the and I kind of mentioned this in the, my opening, but the way the Noah Corps is established right now is we really have two communities. And what I mean by that is, after you commission as an officer, you either pursue a career in aviation, like Commander Waddington, or maritime, like myself or Commander Miller. Um, what we're looking at as we continue to grow the Corps, and I should say that we are looking to grow our, our numbers, uh, almost doubling our strength up to 500 officers over the next decade or so. Ah, I yeah, love it's that. Great, That's great, great news for us. It makes my job uh, you know, that much busier, but in a good way, right? It's a good problem to have. And so um, yeah. as part of that solution is we recognize that like, hey, you know, not everybody's going to go aviation or maritime. What's a third career opportunity? And, and that's that uncrewed system. And so, as you mentioned, Captain Moa and I have had some some conversations about that. Like, what's the vision look like for, for uncrewed systems? And, and certainly we know it's the future. I wouldn't even say it's the future. It's the now, right? It's the present. Yeah. And now. so I yeah. think, um, you know, as, as we look forward to, to growing our numbers here, we're, we're going to be looking at potentially creating career paths specific for uncrewed systems technology. And that'll probably be interdisciplinary, right? It'll be, you know, both in the merit supporting maritime and um, aviation operations, because certainly drones exist in both communities there. But we're definitely recruiting students who, who have technical skills there, who have academic, you know, background and experience with uncrewed systems. And what's funny is, you know, as Industry tends to go that way as the government tends to go that way. You see academia start to mirror that as well. And I'm keenly kind of aware of the programs that exist across you know, a lot of our, our, our partner academic programs. And a lot of them have stood up uncrewed systems technology, especially at the, the intensive you know, marine science and atmospheric science schools that we typically recruit at. Uh, and that's great to see because those students coming out with those minors, that experience that they get in labs or out in the field uh, you know, doing research in support of, um, of uncrewed systems technology is, is incredibly transferable to, to our world. And in fact, as this technology comes online, right, we're relying on this, this next generation that is that has grown up within this technological age, right? And is probably more, or I should say, well-versed, better versed at it than, than you or I or, or, or folks who have you know already been in, in this industry. So, uh, so kind of all kind of coming together and it's really exciting to recruit towards it as well because when you talk on crude systems to a, a potential applicant, right, their light, their eyes kind of light up, right? Because it's it's not only exciting to be a part of that that research, you know, that we typically do, but also just really exciting to be a part of that that technology that's coming online. So it's a really good recruitment tool, and it's something that we definitely look for in applicants as well. Love that. I was just at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science last Friday. One of my technology clients builds this underwater glider that has acoustic, passive acoustics uh, sensing capabilities. They're second to none. And, uh, and we, were, we deployed the glider and tested it for uh, a, a couple of Dartmouth uh, scientists. And they, wanted to ch they wanted to check it out and, uh, and they liked it a lot. And uh, so VIMS, is that, is they, are they recruiting a uh, uh, target for you? Yeah, absolutely. We try to get to VIMS every year. Um, we've got some good relationships down there as well. And uh, fortunately, you know, where they're located, we've, you know, uh, kind of in the Virginia area that we've got quite a few assets and officers nearby that can kind of keep a, a presence and keep keep a you know a footprint down there at that campus. So we've definitely had some luck recruiting there and, and just in general partnerships with NOAA, you know, on the whole as well. That's awesome. Great to hear. Great to hear. Yeah, uh, love this. And on that theme, I, I wanted to go to you, Rebecca. Uh, now, you, you're an aviator, but one of the things, you have this meteorology background. I believe you were at the Aviation Weather Center as the XO. Is that right? I was, yes, out in Kansas City. It was a wonderful assignment. Uh, great. So there, this is a part of the weather service that uh, specializes in aviation forecasts for the country, yes? Correct, yes. All the aviation weather products, not just for the nation, but for the world, come out of there. Um, we oh. do have an international desk in that office that really focuses a lot on weather that pilots can encounter, whether they're crossing the Pacific, the Atlantic, or down in the Caribbean. Wow, that's neat. Uh, and well, I was going to ask you because um, one of the when I was trying to lead these these uncrewed systems activities, I wanted to get a, a UAS system, an uncrewed aerial system, on at every weather forecast office. There's 122 or so around the country uh, to do storm damage assessment and any other kind of observations that would help. And uh, I, that's going to be a long time coming, sadly. And I'm sure they have the budgets to each buy one on their own, but uh, whatever. I'm curious, what are your thoughts as a, as a pilot, a crewed aircraft? Uh, it's always love to ask, the, ask, ask operators like you, what are your thoughts about uncrewed aviation? I have very mixed feelings. Um, oh. 
on one hand, I recognize the importance of uncrewed systems. I mean, it's a great opportunity to be able to do things just like you said, damage assessment. You know, if you have them deployed all over the U.S., you can get them quickly. Like as soon as a tornado goes through, you can get those systems up. Um, where my opposite feeling comes in is from flying in a manned or crewed aircraft and almost hitting an uncrewed system because- Oh, really? When was this? This was several years ago over the coast of of Florida. It was on the East coast of Florida. We were flying um, about 7,500 feet doing a coastal mapping flight. Um, And lo and behold, there's a big bright yellow quadrocopter up there and uncrewed systems, you know, unfortunately, they are so available that the general public can go and get them. And yeah. not that they shouldn't be available to everybody, but I think there's a responsibility that comes with operating them. And yeah, so yeah. when the government operates them, you know, we have so many different regulations that we abide by um, that we have operators who are trained in FAA regulations. They understand airspace, understand general communication with other aircraft. Where when a lot of the general public goes out, they see them kind of as toys and they don't abide by these regulations, which can really pose a hazard to crude systems out there. Right, right. That's interesting. Uh, I get that from a safety standpoint. Roger, Roger. Um, but I think from an, in, from the no emission standpoint, uh, I see a lot of potential benefits and actually actual benefits. You mentioned the right whale surveys. There's also... Uh, a number of scientists, they're doing marine mammal surveys with aerial drones and uh, very successfully. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an augmentation kind of thing. It's not necessarily a replacement, but complementing the crewed aircraft surveys. Is, is that fair? That is fair. And I think complementing is the perfect wor- word to use. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Admiral, but last year in the P3 during hurricane season, we successfully deployed an uncrewed system from the P3 in the center of a hurricane. And that is so vital because even though we're right there, we're flying through the hurricane, there's a limit to what we can do. You know, we don't want to be down towards the surface. That is way too dangerous to send any crew in. But by being able to deploy the uncrewed system, we can get those surface to air interactions that are really important, especially to the intensity forecast of storms. So we are already working with our uncrewed partners uh, to do those kind of things, not only for hurricanes, but also Midwestern uh, tornadic supercells. Uh, Mm. We fly a mission out there with our P3s as well, and they're constantly in coordination with ground crews who are operating uncrewed systems. Right, right. Uh, so that's, I'm so glad you brought that up. I had an episode on uncrewed systems uh, a couple of months ago, and, and we brought that exact example up of the, these, those aerial expendable aerial drones going out of the P3 and, and complementing the data collection of that P3 or Hurricane Hunter. And I love that. I want to see so much more of that going forward. It's just great. It's great. And a good example. I love your perspective. Uh, going back to Skipper Mark Miller, uh, you did a really, really cool mission uh, that was part of something I, I was a giant champion for. And that is you did, you did some remotely operated vehicles, which I count as uncrewed systems, uh, surveys in the, uh, the battlefield of the Atlantic area of the Monitor Marine Sanctuary, the proposed expansion area. Can you tell us a little bit about that work, Mark? Absolutely. That was one of the, uh, one of the really cool projects we worked on. The, um, uh, you know, right there at the, the turn of, of Cape Hatteras, um, you know, quick history about it is is all the in World War II, the the vessels would have to come through uh, civilian vessels mostly. Um, and uh, and then the U, German U-boats would just sit right offshore and hide. Uh, and then as the ships would come by at night and the lights on the shore would would light up uh, their silhouettes, the U-boats would come in and just take them down left and right. Um, and so there was very, very many ships lost right in this immediate area. And so, yeah, we went out there and and kind of what we were just talking about, un, unmanned uh, systems combined uh, with humans, uh, we'd go out there and drop these remotely operated vehicles down and get on the site. We were looking for some new sites. We were working up some some existing sites. Uh, we get down there and work up the uh, with the ROV. Um, and then once we got as much information as we could, then we'd send down the divers. And these were... were uh, um, 
divers using mixed gas, so they, they couldn't stay down forever. So we got a lot of the data up front uh, that we wanted, and then the divers would go down and, and get the videos and, and the exact details and pick up uh, uh, if they needed to, to you know, be hands-on on anything down there. They could. Um, and uh, But it was really neat, right? The stories behind all these vessels uh, is, is um, heartbreaking. And and a major part of history, and it was it was really neat to be a, a part of of studying it and, and discovering new ones, really cool stuff. That's just great. Yeah, so I love of course shipwrecks. I had an episode on shipwreck, shipwreck ecology actually, and and it was with folks who were studying those wrecks actually off North Carolina. I and I mentioned this before. I don't think you know this, Mark, but I I got to dive on the U three five two, a German U boat that uh, was sinking Allied ships, but a Coast Guard cutter, the Icarus, ended up sinking in 1942. Um, and that's just a really interesting, interesting dive from the historical standpoint. And of course, all these wrecks are, are really amazing reefs now, artificial reefs. And, uh, and I did that dive, Mark, with Tane Casserly, this incredible technical diver who now is the superintendent of NOAA's Monitor National Marine Sanctuary, the the one of the shipwrecks you were surveying and working to ex- expand that, that sanctuary beyond just the monitor. Right. Yeah. And we had, we had Tane aboard and, and Joe Hoyt. Um, and they were, oh, yeah. they were the, the ones doing the work. Yeah. Great, great guys. We love diving with NOAA divers, uh, whether they're NOAA Corps or, or the, the scientists, civilian scientists. Uh, terrific. That's neat. Thanks you so much. Well, Hey, Dustin, uh, let me come back to you and, uh, I, since you're the relatively junior here, uh, you mentioned to me that you want to have a career in the NOAA Corps. Um, and by the way, I, so I, Mark, you were saying ROVs. This is what is so impressive to me about the NOAA Corps. You have ship, you have commanding officers of ships, aircraft commanders, uh, and then you have drone pilots. You have aerial drone pilots. You have underwater drone pilots. You even have ROV pilots. I know someone. Uh, do you know if Nick Polenko is still in? Uh, I believe he is. I think I got a, actually an uh, email or something from him recently. I think, and I don't know, maybe, did he did he get his aviation uh, certification or his uh, pilot qualification, Rebecca? He, he is. He is with us. And uh, he is our most recent selection to the Gulfstream. So he, he's currently on the Twin Otter and will be training in the Gulfstream this fall. So he is that guy. He's an aerial drone pilot. He, I believe he was on a ship, so he was a ship driver. I think he, that started that way. You all do. Then he uh, did. A, he was an ROV pilot with a um, guy on the Okeanos, I think. And now here he is flying a, first a, a prop plane and now a jet. I, I'm telling you, your community is so awesome, Dustin. And, and then so for you as a younger person, a junior person relatively, uh, what are your career goals? Where do you want to go? What's your career path? Yeah, thank you, sir. I think uh, just to kind of echo what you just said, I think that that, that makes the career very unique, right? We, we're, unlike the other services, right, we don't have a like rates, right? We don't have specific qualifications that we need to follow, right? We have the two communities, as I've talked about, but your career can take you in a whole lot of you know different paths and you have a lot of autonomy. You have a lot of individual decision-making there to kind of pursue what you want to. And, you know, um, Lieutenant Commander Polanco is a great example there of somebody who has kind of crossed deck between the communities, right? Kind of started on the maritime community, but then is now uh, a qualified aviator and pursuing that path. Uh, so I just kind of like to get out there for our audience that like you're not you're not stuck on one path if you start maritime or, you know, you start aviation. You can, you can kind of cross between the two. And in fact, we like to see that that variety uh, of career experience, especially as you kind of climb the ladder. Uh, and assume more responsibility, assume more commands. That way you have a better understanding of, of not only our service, but of NOAA as, a, as an agency. Um, so I digress. You asked me specifically about myself. I think um, for me, I'm, I'm on the maritime side and, and I, I continue, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years in now and I, I you know, for, foresee myself continue on that path. You know, I, I appreciate what our aviators do, but certainly for me, I, I prefer the maritime side. Ultimately for me, I uh, command at sea is, is kind of my ultimate goal, right? So uh, like the other services, we have a 20-year retirement and we, we do ro- rotate between assignments. Um, so I'm getting ready to go back out to sea next year on my XO tour, executive officer tour. Uh, for those who aren't aware, that's our, that's our, and it'll be on Nancy Foster, you know, so a little bit of um, familiarity there. Uh, but yeah, so we have, uh, that's our, our third tour. 
Uh, and then my fourth C tour would be a commanding officer CO tour and, and uh, you know, in layman's terms, the captain basically. And so that's, that's really the ultimate goal for me, right? Is the, is, is certainly retirement, but command at sea. It's something that I, I look forward to and something that I've you know, kind of been working my entire life towards. Um, past that, you know, everything else past that is kind of gravy, but I, I certainly see myself in future leadership positions, whether that's CEO of a Marine Center or, you know, director of our commission personnel center, which is kind of no course HR shop. That's where we work. You know, that's where I work now as the chief recruiter. Uh, but definitely just, you know, further on leadership positions within the NOAA Corps supporting NOAA's overall mission is kind of kind of where I see myself. Boy, I, I'm feeling like I can make this episode a couple hours. I'm, ha- I'm enjoying this so much. Well, I wish you luck, by the way. You work for Captain so, Chris Van Westendorp, don't you? I do, sir. Yes. So this is a neat thing. Chris was on the oceanographer of the Navy staff when I was the oceanographer of the Navy. So, so NOAA Corps working for the Navy. This happens. Um, and then, been, and then other interesting job opportunities, Rebecca, as I mentioned, you were the XO at the aviation weather center. So there's these senior positions working with a, a, a civilian who might be your director or boss, but, but you're, you have a, a senior leadership position as a no officer with civilian scientists. And, uh, can you talk about the leadership experience of working with all those scientists at the AWC? Absolutely. Um, you know, Admiral, we have a saying in the NOAA Corps, or at least on the aviation side, of officer first, aviator second. And nice. and we stick by that. And what we mean by that is we're more focused on your leadership skills than we are necessarily on, you know, your stick and rudder skills. Those are obviously important, but it's it's how you can command a mission. So not just in our shore assignments. Um, that's what we call the assignments, such as being the XO at the Aviation Weather Center. Um, but it's also applicable on our ship and aircraft as well, because even in those operational assignments, we've got support crew of civilians. So we're constantly working with both civilians and officers. And each assignment helps us develop leadership skills in a different way. Um, so as Dustin mentioned, every time you go out to sea, you're taking, you know, a more high profile increased responsibility role every single time. So you're gaining those leadership skills and then you're applying them. And those directly translate to then when you're on your shore assignments, working with the civilians. Um, We don't have an enlisted corps. So for those familiar with the military, we're not out there leading like drill sergeants. We're leading just as our civilian counterparts would lead in these offices. Um, We do have training that we take, uh, both operational and leadership development skills. That's one of the things we focus on. Um, so we do that both internal with NOAA training and then external as well. I know Dustin and I ran into each other at a training course at the Brookings Institution recently. Um, so all of our officers are constantly developing these skills that, so that we can apply them. That's great. Wow. Love to hear this. This is just so, so fun. And, and Skipper Mark, uh, you were, so one of your jobs besides on NOAA ships you were the, co- the, the, the NOAA liaison to the Coast Guard? Was that the right name of the job? That is indeed the right name for the job. And what did that involve? Yeah. Well, so that was, uh, that was my last land assignment before uh, for the Nancy Foster. And I'll tell you, it was one of the coolest jobs I had my entire career, which is saying something. Oh, and yeah, you my, did a lot in your career. <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, so my job was to to coordinate NOAA and Coast Guard um, uh, assets and projects and and pretty much everything. And you know, I kind of knew beforehand that there was a lot of tangents, um, but I had no idea that pretty much every single thing that NOAA does or Coast Guard does, there is some nexus between the two. Uh, you know, we, we do the stock assessments, they enforce them. Uh, we have the weather, they, they go out and save people in the weather, like just across the board. Uh, and so, so this assignment was, you know, um, at headquarters, uh, at Coast Guard headquarters primarily, but every Monday morning I'd get to brief the uh, no administrator, hey, that was you. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> at that time. That when I first and, started. And, right? Yep. And then every Friday morning I'd brief the commandant of the Coast Guard and then coordinate assets. We'd, you know, we'd get ships to go find uh, sunken fishing vessels for their investigations. Uh, we'd, we'd get the MIST teams to, to move their um, – to. Uh, hydrographic survey, uh, Puerto Rico when the hurricane come through. So Coast Guard flew our assets down there. And it's just, it was a really neat and rewarding uh, project. And I got to see all of NOAA 
and all of Coast Guard. Um, and my life will never, never be the same after that. It was, it was just a really rewarding, cool job. Yeah. I, I just have so much respect for the Coast Guard and I admire their, their, their mission so much. And I, I got to thank you, Mark, because I did want to improve our relationship with the Coast Guard. So every Coast Guard LNO, uh, when I was the administrator and the deputy administrator, I put a lot of pressure on uh, to, for those present those Friday presentations to the uh, or briefs to the commandant, and uh, and it worked somehow because the commandant Schultz awarded me after I left the Distinguished Public Service Award, the Coast Guard Distinguished Public Service Award for for, for that, and uh, it's more than I ever got from the Department of Commerce. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so. Um, I was. I want to thank you personally for that. Absolutely, um, and and the the you know the change I can affect for the the nation and the agency was was huge being there. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, you, you bet. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm I'm gonna about to wrap up. Uh, I've got I could really stay on the line here with you all for a long time, but I think everybody's got a really good taste for what this amazing commissioned officer corps of NOAA does. Uh, so I just want to ask all y'all for any final thoughts or words to anybody who may be considering going into the NOAA Corps. And I'll start with you, Dustin. Yeah, thank you, Admiral, for the chance to, to speak one last time. Um, I just want to say for anyone that's considering the NOAA Corps, it's, it's an incredible opportunity that's going to give you more responsibility and, and more uh, career opportunities than you can than you can imagine right now. And if anyone's on the fence about it and would like to have a conversation, I'm happy to share my contact information if it's okay. As a chief recruiter, I'd feel remiss if I didn't. Um, but yeah, my, my phone number, my office line is 301-713-7717. And feel free to reach out at any time. You know, Give me a call. Happy to have a conversation. If you're thinking about it or if you know somebody who'd be a good fit for us, uh, happy to you know be in contact with them and, and, and just be a resource for them. Um, but yeah, it's an incredible career. Like I said, 10 years in, not looking back or would never change it for the world. And, and I look back at it and I just do have done some of the most incredible things that I, I never thought I would be able to or never have the opportunity to. And I'm forever thankful for, for this for this career and, uh, and, and this life experience. So, again, thank you for having us today, sir. What a great attitude. And I, thank you, Lieutenant Dustin Picard, uh, Chief Recruiter of uh, the NOAA Commission Corps. And by the way, anybody who really wants probably the best recruiting video ever for the NOAA Corps, Google stories from the blue, Lieutenant Dustin Picard, and you will see him in action at the Flower Garden Banks diving. And uh, Dustin, that, that's probably the best recruiting video you've ever, the NOAA Corps has ever made. Yes, sir. It's, it's funny. It comes up quite a bit. You know, I get emails and calls from candidates all the time. Like, Hey, I saw you on YouTube. And, and so it's, a, <laughs> you know, when I did that video probably five, six years ago now, I had no idea that I'd be in the seat where I'm at now. And it just continues to, you know, pay dividends for us here in the recruiting branch. And it's, it's always fun to, you know, when, when folks see that and they get drawn to it. So, uh, you know, I kind of love, love that, that job. I love making that video and I'm glad it's helping me out now and just in general, helping get our name out there, you know, cause we are such a small service. So it's incredible opportunities and incredible career experience. And I, I hope to share that with the world really and, and share that with prospective applicants. So thank you for bringing that up. You bet. And, uh, I, you know, Rebecca, I didn't know if you were a commander or a Lieutenant commander. Are you a commander? I am actually a captain select now, Holy and uh, Dustin was also selected for promotion recently. We haven't pinned on yet, but hopefully oh, that day is coming soon. Very good, C C Captain Select. That's as high. It's about as high as you can go. And, and making admirals more of a there's a whole other uh, decision calculus there. So great job on you. I I'm really really commend you for that. And, and you, thank you. I was very pleased to hear the news. That's just fantastic. So, and you, as the executive director to the deputy undersecretary for operations in Silver Spring, any last words for anybody considering the NOAA Corps as a as a career path? Absolutely. I'm I'm actually going to tag on to Dustin here, and I promise I'm not getting paid by him. Uh, but I want to encourage people to not shy away from applying for fear that they don't have the qualifications. Uh, one of the great things about NOAA is we want good people. We want good leaders. We will teach the operations. I came in and went to sea with zero seagoing experience. I got selected for aviation with zero flight hours. Um, so we will develop those that decide to join us. Um, so I don't want you know our unique um, operations to actually scare anybody off. You know, we have opportunities for everyone. 
That's great. What a great message. And yeah, everything we talked about could be intimidating for the uninitiated and you just open your arms to them. And uh, that's a really nice way to put it. So thank you so much, Rebecca. Really great having you on the show. And, and I'll finish with you, uh, Mark. You are retired NOAA Corps commander and now currently the CEO and founder of Greenwater Marine Sciences Offshore. Uh, any last words for our audience on the NOAA Corps and the great career path you've had, for example? Yeah, this was, I mean, you know, you, you get to serve your nation and, and humanity um, in this organization. Uh, the responsibilities you have because we're such a small organization that, you know, junior officer is doing, doing a lot. Um, and and uh, it's really important work. Um, and then the adventure, right? I mean, we don't do boring stuff. Nothing we do is boring. Um, well, there's some paperwork here and there. But uh, I'm, I'm going to end it with, with one of the uh, uh, highlights of my career early on was the Sustainable Seas Expedition. Uh, and this is what roped me in to, to stay in the organization forever. And it was right there at the beginning. Uh, I was the operations officer. I had, I had Dr. Sylvia Earle on board, uh, Kathy Sullivan. I had Michael Collins of Apollo uh, <laughs> fame. Um, Gosh, wow. And, and uh, Captain Craig McLean was the CEO at the time and later became our acting chief scientist for NOAA and recently retired. Um, and uh, we were doing manned submersibles uh, and primarily looking to expand uh, uh, the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. Get out of here. And, That's a, such a cool mission. Right. Jeez. And, and the, the, the major thing we one of the major things we did is. As a young ensign, I discovered a new underwater formation, which uh, later um, uh, became part of the justification for the Dry Tortugas South expansion of the uh, Florida Keys. Uh, and uh, and then Sylvia, you know, named it after me. So I got my own underwater uh, formation. Yeah, uh, you, are you kidding me? <laughs> nope. And that, that doesn't happen it? very often. It's yeah. No, no. This is the kind of kind of place you know, no core officers with. We get we get to do this, and the responsibility is great, uh, and the reward is is even more. Such well said. Thank you for ending on such a high note, there, uh, Commander Mark Miller. Uh, wonderful. Well, thank you all. Uh, this has probably been one of my favorite shows ever, and I've had some great shows. But uh, thank you. And here we are at the end of our latest leg of our journey on the American uh, uh, Blue Economy podcast, uh, where we ex- looked at the NOAA Corps uh, commissioned officers and their contributions to the American Blue Economy. Please join us for our next episode in September. I'm having on my good friend, uh, retired Navy SEAL Captain, Dr. John Havlick, and we're gonna look at some leadership lessons uh, and how they relate to the blue economy. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time.